so good to be with you. Um, my name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you today. If you're a guest with us today, we are so glad you're here. Special welcome to you. Hope you already feel at home. Uh, we're certainly uh, glad you're here. I also want to send a shout out to the Bel Air and Edgewood campuses worshiping across town uh, here at the same time. One church in three locations and we're excited to be together today. What a fantastic uh, spring weekend and that's been good stuff. Hope you're enjoying the break in the weather. We've got this fantastic series, this disillusioned series. I love this series. I love illusions. I am the greatest magician audience member that you will ever see. I love magic shows. I, you know, there's like, there's like the little kid who's excited and then there's me next to him who's just going crazy. But I can't do any magic, so no magic tricks today. Uh, but that's not the only kind of illusion. We also have optical illusions. I love optical illusions. I found this on the internet. Here, check this out. I like this one. right? I love that thing. Yeah, it's so great. I, I've seen it like 50 times now. I'm still always pretty sure it's a Rubik's Cube there. I love that. And that hand comes in. Like, Whoa, where'd that hand come from? I love that thing. That's the way illusions work, right? Our brain and our eyes kind of work together to trick us. We get some information and we put that information together in a way that makes sense to us. And then it's not even true. And so we think there's a Rubik's Cube there and there isn't. It's just a piece of paper sitting on that desk. I love that. Uh, but in life, that same thing can happen, right? We get a little bit of information, and our brain puts it together the best we know how, and we can believe some things that are really just illusions. And when that happens in life, maybe it's not so great a thing. And we've been this whole series, and for the next few weeks, we're looking at things that sometimes seem true about the church, or seem true about some Christians, and we're asking ourselves, is it real, or is it an illusion? Now, but we know, though, a good illusion, what makes a good illusion a good illusion is that it's so convincing. Even after somebody tells you it's an illusion, maybe, I don't know if you're like me, when that paper gets all the way back around and he pulls his hand away, all of a sudden, boom, my brain tells me there's a Rubik's Cube sitting there. Even though I know it's a piece of paper, I just watched it get spun around. And a good illusion is like that. Even though we know it's an illusion, it sure seems true. And the thing we're talking about today, boy, it's one of those. We're talking about the illusion that the church is too political. And some of you, I know, don't think that's an illusion. You're like, I don't know why this is in the series. This is the wrong series. Because that's not an illusion. That's just true. The reason I know a lot of you think it's true is they did this big national survey a couple years ago. These two guys did. They surveyed the whole country, thousands of people. And they asked them, what do you think about the church? Check this out. 50% of the people they surveyed think that Christians involved in politics is one of our nation's problems. 
under 40, 67% of the people they surveyed think that Christians involved in politics is one of this nation's problems. In fact, even when they just surveyed Christians under 40, 47% of them think that Christians involved in politics is one of our nation's problems. Even Christians think this. So it isn't like just a few people think there's a Rubik's Cube sitting on the table. Most people think there's a Rubik's Cube sitting on the table. And if we think that's an illusion, well, we're going we're gonna to make that case here in a minute. But first, we just have to admit that sometimes it sure looks like there's a Rubik's Cube sitting on the table. Sometimes it sure looks like the church is too mixed up in politics, that Christians are just too political. In the past several years, you know, if you've been watching, you've seen presidential candidates announce their candidacy at Christian colleges, Christian fundraisers, prayer rallies. And people look at that and they say, I think the church is too political. You've seen Christian lobbying organizations on both sides of the marriage debate, the immigration debate, and dozens of other issues in our culture. And these lobbying organizations sure look like and act like every other lobbying organization. And people look at that and say, I can't tell you all apart from any interest group. I think the church is too political. I was in seminary in Tennessee. And uh, about half the student body of this seminary uh, were students from other countries, uh, mostly South America, West Africa, and Europe. And uh, they would come, and they were pastors in other countries, they would come to seminary, and while they were in seminary, they would work in local churches there in rural Tennessee. And several of them, over the years, had this conversation with me. They would say, help me understand, in my church, there are Christians, now Christians who have a bumper sticker on their car that says, God bless America. And they would ask me, I, I just don't understand that bumper sticker. Do, don't they want God to bless every country? Do they, do they really only want God to b- bless America? Do, do they think God should especially bless America? Do they, don't they care about God blessing my home country? Whatever it was. And and I would try to answer and explain. I said, no, I I think they want God to bless every country. It's just they also want God to bless America, and that's the one they thought of, so they put the bumper sticker. You know, I'd try to explain, because I'd grown up seeing those bumper stickers, you know. And they would listen and try to understand, but a lot of them would end up saying some version of this sentence to me. They would say, "I I think you American Christians, you're just too political. And they weren't even talking about, they didn't even know about Republicans and Democrats. They just meant our own nation. And I, you know, have to admit, I guess from their perspective, it sort of looked like that. It did sort of look like there was a Rubik's Cube sitting on the table. It did sort of look like the church was too political. And this matters because people are walking away from Christ over this issue. This same survey, they talked about people who had left the church. And a lot of them said the reason they left the church was because they thought the church was too political. And and a lot of people who won't even give the church a chance because they think we're too mixed up in some political view that they disagree with, and so they won't even listen to what the church has to say. So we've got to pay attention to this, and it's, it's not just because of what people who are looking at the church from the outside in think. People inside the church are torn up about this too. Uh, I, I've, in the past few months, I've had lots of long conversations with Christians who are concerned about some area of darkness in our world. Maybe they're concerned that it seems like our nation has lost interest in working for real justice for the poor or real justice for minorities. 
Maybe they're, they're concerned about the fact that we just kind of stopped talking about uh, what's happening with the unborn in our country. Or maybe they're just worried about the slow destruction of our environment with no national will to do anything to solve the problem. Or the economic climate that's out of control. Or the violence that runs across the globe. They're concerned with these issues and they say, well, what am I supposed to do about them? Do I start a petition? A voter drive? Do I host a rally? Do I run for office? Do I elect somebody? Do I file a lawsuit with the Supreme Court? What do I do to address these issues? And they know whatever they do, somebody's going to look at them and say, I knew it. You're too political. On the other hand, these things are happening and they want to help. But here's the thing. As real as it looks, there was no Rubik's Cube on that table And it's an illusion that the church is too political. But if we're going to figure out why it's an illusion, because it's a really convincing illusion, if we're going to figure that out, we've got to let somebody come down and spin the paper. And for us, that somebody's always going to be God. And so we're going to go to God's Word. We're going to go to God's Word and ask God to explain to us what the church is supposed to be. And then we're going to do our best to be that. And you can't do much better than how God puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's describing the church, describing God's people, and he says it like this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you, out of darkness, and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You see, we are meant to be, we are called to be, we are created to be a people and a nation. That sounds pretty political, doesn't it? And this isn't just talking about one small group of Christians. This is all Christians from all the nations of the globe are called to be one new holy nation, one new chosen people. And we're called to live like God's people. And when you live like a people, well, that's what we call politics. Aristotle invented the word politics. It just means the way a people live. The way citizens interact. International politics, national politics, local politics. In every case, it's just the word for how does that group of people interact with one another? How do they make decisions together? How do they settle disputes with one another? That's politics. And God says, you're a people. And God's getting political. God's saying there's a distinct way of life for us people, for this holy nation, and it's different than the way of life of other people and other nations. Here's the thing. The illusion is the church is too political. Here's the reality. The church isn't political enough. We are not enough shaped into the new and distinct way of life that God is calling us to. Here's In, in Scripture, throughout the witness of Scripture. Whenever God's people came in contact with the nations of the world, the call from God was to be different than the nations of the world. 
And when the message of Christ came and the early church came, they called the church out of whatever nation they were already a part of. To the Jews, they said, you no longer are a people of the law, you're now a people of faith. To the Romans, they said, you now have a new emperor. He is Jesus Christ, and you answer to no other emperor. I wonder if in our moment... Before we get too excited about we the people of the United States of America or we the people of whatever country you hail from, we need to be reminded to be the people of God who has called us to be His chosen people, His holy nation. This is what Jesus did all the time in His ministry. It's what got Him killed. We talked about this in some detail three weeks ago, a week before Easter. Uh, we looked at the last week of Jesus' life and saw that one of the key reasons he got killed was that he wouldn't participate in the politics of the day because he was so committed to the kingdom of God. One of the texts we didn't look at then was a text that seemed appropriate for this week. It's a text about taxes. Now, I know some of you are still smarting uh, from our tax week this last week. Well, Jesus had an encounter over taxes too that didn't end too well for him either. So here we go. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. Now, you've got to know who the Pharisees and the Herodians are. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians were two of the most important political parties of the Jerusalem scene. The Pharisees were religious conservatives. They wanted to do Jewish things in Jewish ways, and they would have just as soon driven the Romans out so that the Jews could rule themselves. Not the Herodians, though. They were religious and cultural progressives. They liked the Romans. They wanted to do Roman things in Roman ways. In fact, they get their name, Herodians, from Herod, the king that the Romans put in charge. The Herodians were all on board with Roman practices and Roman policies and Roman taxes. And so here's the test. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, that you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Now see, they're sure they have him trapped. Because the Herodians and the Pharisees, they didn't agree on much, but they agreed on one thing. Jesus was trouble. Because Jesus asked for the loyalty of the people. And when people gave Jesus their loyalty, they stopped being loyal to the Herodians or to the Pharisees. And so they set up a trap, and here's the way the trap works. It's really simple. Half the city of Jerusalem thought they ought to pay taxes so the Romans wouldn't kill them all. And half the city of Jerusalem thought they ought to stop paying taxes in an act of rebellion against Rome. So Jesus is stuck. No matter what he answers, he's going to make half the city mad and he'll lose his popular support. It's a perfect trap for Jesus. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. Now to us, it may seem like Jesus got out of their trap. But in their minds, he didn't get out of their trap. He fell into it in the worst possible way. They set up a trap that was going to make half the city mad. Jesus managed to make the whole city mad. He said, I won't side with the Herodians or the Pharisees. I'm not a rebel or a Roman. I've got my whole own new people with our own new politics in our own new nation under our own new king. And I 
I can imagine Jesus saying, and I tried to be pretty clear about that. He started his ministry. The way he began his ministry was calling out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. He told stories that sounded like this, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He taught us a brand new way to live. Catch this. If you're part of a new kingdom and you're a new people, You're going to have to live in the way of the people. That's what politics is, living in the way of the people. And Jesus taught us a new way to live. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a totally different kind of politics. Jesus was being clear from the very beginning. I'm not here to build your kingdoms. I'm not here to support your plans. I'm here to build the kingdom of God. And what I'm calling my people to do is to be the people of God. Jesus' earliest followers understood this. No better example than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a citizen of Rome and a Jew. He had the two greatest kingdoms going for him already by birth. But he rejected both so that he could give his allegiance to Christ. And he was kicked out by the Jews and he was thrown in prison in just about every Roman city he visited. And yet he persisted in calling Christian people to be part of the new kingdom of God. Paul is the one who taught the church this. In Romans 10, chapter 9, he teaches us, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that is great and magnificent news for all of us who are in need of saving. Confess with your lips and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. That is good news, and I hope you know it. But what we miss is that is radically political speech. The word Caesar eventually became the title of the Roman emperor. But at first it wasn't a title, it was just a name. Julius Caesar, and then Augustus Caesar, he took that name, Caesar, as his name. The word they used for the title of Caesar was the word kurios, which we translate Lord. So when the people were gathered together and had to pledge their allegiance to the emperor, they would say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And when Paul teaches us to pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ, he taught the early Christians to say, Christus Curios, Christ is Lord. You could not miss in that moment the political implications of what Paul is teaching them. Paul is teaching them we're a brand new people with a brand new king and a brand new way of being the people of God. We just don't fit in with Roman politics anymore because if you can't say Caesar is Lord, you don't belong in Roman politics. We just don't fit in with Jewish politics anymore because if you can't say I'm submitted to the law, you just don't fit 
with Jewish politics. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, you were separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship, you were foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are citizens of God's people. What's politics? It's the way you be a people. It's the way of the citizen. And he's saying, now you're citizens of God's people. So be the people. To the Philippian church, he put it so simply. He just said, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Kurios, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the Philippian church and every Christian since, we are never truly at home in any nation of the world. In the 2,000 years since he wrote that, nations have risen and fallen. Some have been great and some have been awful. But no Christian has ever been at home in any one of them. They were always a stranger. They were always an alien. They were always a visitor to that place because their citizenship, their allegiance, the kingdom of which they were a part, was the new kingdom, the new people that God was building in Christ Jesus. So how do you live? How do you live as a guest then in the kingdoms of this world? Well, the New Testament gives us all kinds of advice. You could read all of Romans 13 or you could look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Romans 13 begins this way. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. I find this text fascinating. This is Paul writing this. Paul, who got arrested in every other town he went to because the authorities said, don't preach, and he said, sorry, I have to preach. So we know, and Paul teaches us, that when the authorities of the world conflict with the authority of God, well, we choose the authority of God every time. But yet, he seems to say, when they don't, drive the speed limit. Pay your taxes. Some of you are thinking, you're just kidding about that, pay your taxes. But no, he's actually specific. Read on in 13, just four verses later, he says, this is also why you pay your taxes. I'm sorry, he's very clear. For the authorities are God's servants who give their time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. I've always thought if I worked for the IRS, that would just be like my tagline. You know, the Bible says, if you owe taxes, I don't know, it seems like that might work. But this is what Paul says. He says, we don't belong here. We don't live here. This isn't our home. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is there. That is our first allegiance. But we're going to be good guests. We're going to live as well as we can. This is Peter's strategy too. In that text in chapter 2, right after he says, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, picked by God out of the nations of the world. You don't belong there. You're now a new people. He then says this, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, as guests in the systems of the world, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live like guests. He goes on to say, live such good lives that people praise God. He goes on to say, respect the emperor. Honor the governors. And it's pretty, pretty clear that First Peter is written at a time when the emperor and the governors are undergoing a massive persecution of the church. And yet Peter says, respect the emperor, honor the governors. 
What Peter and Paul and Jesus consistently call us to is to always, within whatever kingdom we find ourselves in, we the people of the United States of America, we the people of Canada, we the people of England, we the people of Kenya, whatever we the people you find yourself a part of, in that context, never forget your first calling to be the people of God. So if they ask us to help, if the kingdoms of the world ask us to help craft good laws then vote by all means. If they invite us to serve in leading, whether it's a school board or a senator or a president, then by all means serve in that way. But don't think that's the whole thing or the, even the main thing. For the main thing is always to be the people of God. I don't know if you know the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson worked for Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal, was arrested for his role in that. He became a Christian while in prison. Later, he worked heavily among Christian political causes kind of during the heyday of the religious right during the end of the last century. Recently, and throughout a lot of that time, he also started a wonderful ministry for prisoners. Just a couple years, he wrote this in a book. Christians should never have a political party. It is a huge mistake to become married to an ideology. Because the greatest enemy of the gospel is ideology. Ideology is a man-made format for how the world ought to work. Isn't that interesting? A format for how the world ought to work. That's called politics. And Chuck Colson, in agreement with the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself, says we can't get sucked into the politics of any man-made theory because we are called to a totally different kind of politics. So how can you tell? Some of us know we need a litmus test to know this is not a mistake we want to make. We want to honor what Jesus has called us to and what Paul has called us to, to first be the people of God. How do you know if you're in trouble? Well, I think one of the clearest tests we can use is how do we approach power? Let me tell you another story. Jesus was talking to his disciples. And three of the Gospels tell us this story. They started fighting over which of them was the greatest. What an embarrassing argument, but can't you just see it happening? I think I'm the best follower. No, I really think I think I'm kind of the super fan of the group. They started arguing over which of them was the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, the word translated Gentiles here just means the nations, the kings of the nations of the world, lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them, well, they call themselves benefactors, but we know better. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. The one who rules should look like the one serving. For who is greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves them? Well, I'm pretty sure it's the one who sits at the table. But I, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. You have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, if we haven't been paying attention to Jesus, or Paul, or Peter, or Chuck Colson, 
then when Jesus says there, I confer on you a kingdom, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, well, it's about time somebody gave me a kingdom because I am ready to rule. Just tell me how big, tell me who's in it. I will tell those people what to do, right? I mean, now we are talking, somebody's going to give me a kingdom. Some of you are thinking, I mean, I don't, I don't just sometimes just think if only you were in charge of this, you know, you could just fix it. You know, if only you were in charge of the school board or the county or the state or the nation or the world, if you just put me in charge for 10 minutes, I could settle all this nonsense, right? Maybe it's just me, I don't know. Megalomaniacs Anonymous here, I guess, I don't know. But I think we think like this. But if we look at that text and we think to ourselves, finally, somebody's going to give me a kingdom, well, then we're not paying attention to what Jesus is saying. Because first of all, he says, we don't do power like the nations do power. All the nations, even this nation, does power. We do power different. For us, the greatest is the one who serves. The greatest is the one who looks like the least. And then he says this, I'm going to give you a kingdom. We're like, yes. And he says, but it's going to be just like the one God gave me. I'm going to give you a kingdom like the Father gave me a kingdom. And what kind of kingdom did Jesus get? As I recall, it was a bunch of ingrates and rebels. He had to serve them. He sacrificed for them. Ultimately, to secure his kingdom, Jesus had to die for them that they might be rescued. So God will give you a kingdom if you are his disciple. God will give you an arena of influence and leadership. And God will ask you to serve that kingdom and to sacrifice for the kingdom. And maybe, perhaps, die for those God has called you to serve. That's the way power works in the kingdom of God, in the new politics that God is bringing. Power doesn't work anything like it does in the other nations. To be the people of God is precisely to be the people that says, I will not lord it over, but I will serve. I will not put you down, but I will lift you up. And I will accept a kingdom of sacrifice and service. I had a professor in seminary. He'd been a missionary for about 40 years. Came back to America after being gone for a long time. And he was lecturing one day and kind of lost his place in his notes and got distracted from what he was supposed to be talking about. He stepped out in front of his lectern and he said to us, I am concerned that the American church will lose its witness in its thirst for power. He didn't say much more. He didn't need to. I can't right now remember a single other thing he taught me, but I've been haunted by that observation ever since. And I think we need to make a confession. Sometimes he's been right. Sometimes over the years, the American church has lost its witness in our thirst for power. And if you're somebody outside the church and you've been watching us, you need to know when that happened, that wasn't because Christians were being too political. It looked like it, I know, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was we weren't being political enough. We weren't being the people that God had called us to be. We weren't committed enough to God's kingdom. And we were too distracted by the pressures and the temptations of the kingdoms around us. 
And this is hard to do. Mountain is a place where we are trying hard to be the people. We aren't trying to make good Americans here. You can come here from any nation under the globe. We aren't trying to make good Republicans or good Democrats. We're trying to make good disciples. Now the good news is, uh, it's clear that if we are good disciples, any nation would be glad to have us. But our first commitment will be to be faithful followers of Christ. To be the people of God before we say we the people of any nation the Son has ever seen. So how do we do it? Well, it's going to be hard. Because boy, it sure looks like there's a Rubik's Cube sitting on that table. It sure looks like the path of power, the path of the world's kingdom's politics, it sure looks like that's the way to make a difference. And I don't have it all figured out. But I think the examples we've seen might lead us to a few concrete practices. The first thing it seems to me we'd have to do is decide that whatever the cultural trends may be, whatever's trending on Twitter or talked about in the news media, our priorities will stay the priorities of Jesus. Wherever else it goes, we're going to, with Christ, decide to defend the powerless and the poor and the sick and the unborn and the hurting and the broken and the lost. We're going to decide with God who has said, I love the whole world, that we're also going to be the people who put the whole world first. Every river, every stream, every blade of grass, but especially every person, whatever color or lifestyle or nation they come from. We could be the people who decide, like Christ, to care for prisoners and widows, not because it's politically interesting in the world's politics, but because Christ says it's at the center of his politics. We could decide with Christ to look to the interests of everyone and not just our own or our families or our tribes. I think another thing we could do is we could follow Christ's example and reject simple choices. They came to Jesus and gave him two choices, pay the tax or don't. And Jesus said, I'll choose option three. And everybody hated him. That would happen to the church today, too. If we consistently said, I'm sorry, your choices are too simple. I need better choices. I need more complicated answers. There can't just be a multiple choice test to ever to solve the problems of our world. It's got to be more complicated than that. We could be those people who follow his example and push for more Godly solutions. Now along the way, we can't pull out. We have to live like good guests. Good guests help wash the dishes. Good guests clean up after themselves. Good guests, if there's work to be done, help with the work. We've got to be good guests. We've still got to figure out in whatever nation you find yourself, how are we going to build the roads and build the schools and save the bay and make sure our communities function for all citizens. So we've got to pay our taxes. I'm sorry, Paul said it, not me. We have to obey lawful authority, except when lawful authority rejects the authority of God. We've got to vote, I think. And, and if God calls you to, go run for office and go write better laws that move forward the loving purposes of Christ. 
as good guests in the systems of this day, we're going to participate as helpfully as we can. We're going to celebrate, we the people of whatever nation you're a part of, wherever God calls you. But we can't abdicate, be the people of God who serve the King Jesus. And while we're doing that, while we're helping, while we're participating in the politics of this world, could we do that not only as Christians, but like Christians? Wouldn't that be fascinating? You know, like Christians who don't lie or slander or demean or mock. I know for most of us, three-quarters of our political speech just got eliminated. Okay? If we decided we will neither lie nor slander nor demean nor mock those we disagree with. I get that. Well, let's just focus on the other part of our political speech. You know, Jesus actually mentions name-calling. That makes the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, his biggest sermon ever, name-calling makes the cut as something he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. So if we're going to be involved in the politics of the world, let's do it not just as Christians, but like Christians. And let's not call people names. And let's not vote for people who call people names. And let's not listen to people on the radio who call people names. I promise you, we quit voting for them and quit listening to them, they'll stop doing it because they want us to vote for them and they want us to listen. We could do that. We could participate in the systems of this world, not just as, but like Christians. And above all, above all this else, could we decide to trust what Jesus teaches us about power? Could we decide to reject the temptation that the solution to solving problems, the solution to moving forward God's agenda is going to be to grasp the power of the world? You know, this was one of Jesus' very first temptations, is the invitation to use the world's power for God's agenda. And Jesus said, I won't do it. And it remains one of the church's greatest temptations. I was reading a pastor from Idaho who's thought a lot about this question. He says this, Church history has been consistent in this matter. Every time Christianity has fallen into the trap of using the politics of the world to achieve its means, it has lost its power and effectiveness. Relevant Christianity never loses sight of the reality that everything is upside down in the kingdom of God when contrasted with the kingdoms of this world. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the least, the first is the last. We are called to love our enemies and to be the most effective. We do not pursue power. We pursue service and sacrifice. If we did that, if we decided to be the people God has called us to be, we'd be the most political people ever. We would be living the way of the people of God. And we would transform the world not by settling for the power that the world offers, but because the power of the gospel and the power of Christ's sacrifice is always the only thing that has done any good anyway. Hear now once again what God says about the church. Hear now once again what God says about us from all the nations of the globe 
who have been made into God's people. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. O Lord, this is our prayer that Jesus Christ might be kurios, King and Lord over us, and that we might know ourselves to be His people, and we might be the people of God. In the name of our King we pray. Amen.